What is up, my friends? Welcome to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast, where I interview incredible fathers, gaining wisdom from their stories for you and I to grow in our craft. I'm your guide, Ned Shout, father to five kiddos, currently ages 8 to 15, and husband to my rad wife, Sarah, working on our 17th year of marriage. So yep, I'm in the thick of it, the adventure of fatherhood. And I'm working daily to rebel against the low expectations for fathers and create a world where fatherhood matters. You and I have the greatest opportunity to impact our world through the way we embrace our fatherhood role. I believe the role of the father is to serve, guide, provide, protect, and have fun in the messiness of it all. You guys, I am so excited and a bit beyond words to introduce you to my friend Heath. We had one of the most amazing conversations, and I'm so excited for you to hear it and just to fall into his stories and his life situations that he is about to pass on to you. And it all started from the last time I had lunch with him. He turned and looked at me in the parking lot and said, I was put on this earth to be a father. And let me tell you, he didn't grow up with a father showing him how it's done. You guys, enjoy this conversation because you are going to grow as a man, a father, and as a human being. Enjoy meeting my friend. All right, here we go. Another episode of Fatherhood Field Notes. Super pumped to be hanging out with my friend Heath. What's up, Heath? What up, Ned? Dude, it's like I got to mentally like calm myself down because as I'm about to hit record, I almost start laughing because I'm just so pumped to talk <laughs> fatherhood, especially yeah. with a kick-ass dude who I know we could talk for like four hours straight. And so going, all right, let's get to work. Let's talk about some good stuff so other dudes can can learn with us. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. So right off the bat, let's just get a couple questions out of the way. How old are you this fine day? 47 just turned 47 happy birthday and how many years have you been married 23 nice it's like almost like you were ready for that question Mm -hmm. and uh, how many kids do you have and how old are they two as far as i know and 19 and 21 dude so perfect man you were like you know, I just had my oldest is 15. She just turned 15 in March. And so it's like, I'm stepping into this new, you know, she's a freshman. So that's still little, but it's like, dude, she's gonna have her permit soon. So you're now kind of at the tail end of that season, stepping into a whole new season. So man, I need men like you in my life to turn to as I'm stepping into this world. Yeah. My, my youngest just, uh, just bought a car. Dude, big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal. Got a credit card, went through the whole process, bought a bike, paid it off, started building his credit. And, you know, uh, we just decided like, hey, man, like, what, what? you know, you're, you're not going to school right now. Um, physically, he, right. he's, he's a student at UCI and he decided to stay home and save the money. And I'm like, well, the money that you're saving, you can, you know, you can buy a car now. Uh, he works at Topgolf. He's been there for two years, steady income. You know, they really appreciate him. And uh, we just decided like, hey, let's let's start looking at cars. And, you know, he went and put it all in his own name. No cosign. Um, yeah. and, it, and he's 19. And it's just like it's like, wow, like <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have my license till I was 19. So, <laughs> dude, yeah. that's awesome. That's awesome. So then what have you done? You've been married 23 years. What have you kind of done for a living that has, you know, provided, served the family over the years? Well, I uh, used to skateboard. 
um, for a living. And, um, unfortunately my career started to really take off, uh, right after, uh, well, right before I had my firstborn, uh, Elijah. And, um, so I was touring a lot, you know, I, mm-hmm. I got back from Japan, I just got back from New Zealand. I, I toured the U S and, and I was filming a part, uh, for Thrasher and, um, was just like, you know, in the middle of filming it, like I just kept having this tug at my heart that, that I wasn't home, mm. that I wasn't there for my wife. I wasn't there for Elijah. And, uh, I, I couldn't skate, man. Like the conviction was so deep in me that like, you know, I would be trying to get my head in the game and like, you know, some of the stuff I, I skated like big gnarly stuff, big rails, yeah. big stairs, stuff like that. And I just, I couldn't get there. And I was just, I was, you know, at risk physically. Mm. And, um, I remember I had brought my friend, Luke Braddock, another great dad. You know, you, you should talk to him. He's fantastic. Uh, fantastic guy. Loves the Lord, loves his wife, loves his kids. Amazing athlete, professional skater, super good surfer, lives down in uh, Prune, Tucky. And, uh, he was, uh, working with me on, um, you know, building his career. And I was kind of taking him along with me while I was filming this video part. And we were out like skating and shooting pictures and doing all this stuff. And I just remember like this really deep conviction came over me, like in the middle of the photo session. And I didn't even remember this until we reconnected uh, a few years back at a, um, at a, a Cal Expo, like skate demo thing here in Sacramento and he was telling me, he goes, do you remember that day when we were filming and you took your shoes off and we were like eight miles away from your house. We know cause me and Matt Sharkey, like the photographer, we drove to your house to bring your shoes back to you. You took your <laughs> shoes off, you left your board and you told Matt, this is the future. I'm the past and I have to go and be a dad. What? And I was like, that sounds really dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Me and Matt, like we still talk about that to this day. Like it really rocked us to our core. And I remember walking home and it took the whole eight miles for me to come to terms with the fact that I was giving up my, my dream career and giving that up and, 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 and wanting to do so, I was going to have to call all my sponsors and, you know, I felt horrible because it's like, these guys have been investing in me for years. And now it's like, I'm finally getting all this momentum behind my name and they're finally going to, you know, get their return on investment and I'm going to call them up and quit. Like, this is not going to be good. Dude, it's a huge decision. Yeah, it was, it was a big, big day. Cried a lot. It, I felt like I was dying and a, and a part of me was. Man, I think that that is okay. So let's just talk about this for a second. So, you know, there's this idea of, you know, holding on to your dreams and, and having a dream, right? And so, so I think that there's this balance of like, do what you love. I think we hear that a little too much in life. So, as, as you think back on that moment, like you were prioritizing your family, but you still held true to your identity, right? It's, it's not like you just, um, your wife started buying you your dad clothes from the gap and you got yourself a fat dad bod. You, so, so talk me through that. Like, how do you maintain Heath 
but now embrace Heath as a dad and that this other piece had to die. Oh man. I, uh, I, I dove in like just, you know, I told my wife what I was going to do and she had this like look of like terror and then mm. like calm. And she was like, cause I'm a pretty intense guy. And uh, she just kind of knew that I'd already made up my mind. Like we mm. didn't really discuss this beforehand. This was like something that I was just chewing on and meditating on for probably about six months to a year. And, and I kind of knew early on that this was like my decision, you know, like, like right when we found out that, that she was pregnant, like this, this conviction started coming over me. And so I, I didn't, I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't know what I was going to do. I dropped out of high school when I was like 15 to pursue skateboarding. And um, I didn't have anything to, to fall back on. I, I didn't have a family that was supportive. I didn't have anything like that. And I, I turned to my friend, Steve, who is uh, one of the guys, you know, that I, I look up to the most. Um, he's turning 60 here in June and we're going to run a marathon to celebrate him turning 60. And nice. he, he told me, he goes, well, what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. And he goes, well, I have a friend who owns a bike shop. Um, you know, he can pay you 12 bucks an hour. <laughs> I have a mortgage and, and a kid <laughs> in the Bay area, you know, California. And, uh, and I'm going to go to work for 12 bucks an hour. But I just felt this, I felt this like peace, you know, I prayed about it and I was like, what am I going to do? I, I'm going to learn how to run a business. And that's what we decided on. So over the next couple of weeks and months, like we just prayed about it and decided like, I'm going to learn how to run a business. I'm not going to learn about it theoretically in school. I'm going to learn about it practically real life. I'm going to go and find an employer that will, you know, teach me the ways. And, uh, I, I went to work for this bike shop in Danville, um, Danville bike, Jose, uh, props to Jose for giving me a shot. And, uh, in six months I was their number one sales guy. And, and a year later I was running the store and well, actually six months later I was running their store. And, uh, um, at, at the end of that year, Jose was kind of like, uh, you're kind of threatening my identity here at the store. Mm. I want it to be about me and not about you. And so you're fired. And I was like, Whoa, okay. So, um, I went to work for another bike shop and just had some more crazy experiences. Like I, I, I have this really interesting calling in life, Ned, that um, the first half of my life, at least I learned from the lack of, Yeah, I, I didn't learn like how to do things correctly. I learned from how to not do things correctly. So from my dad, um, you know, my parents, um, my siblings, uh, teachers, like, you know, every once in a while there would be somebody that would intervene in my life and would, would be a catalyst for me to move forward. But for the most part, I learned by going, mm, I'm not going to do that. Nope. Don't want to treat people like that. Nope. Don't want to be treated mm. like that. You know, dude, that's a powerful statement. So what's the difference, right? So what's the difference in you deciding that, okay, I don't want to treat people like that. I don't want to be treated like that. So instead of allowing the circumstances of my life of people sucking at the way that they, you know, have 
taught me nothing. And instead of being a turd yourself, you shifted that to like, I'm going to go do it differently. Like, how do we capture that? What's the, what's that, that hook that made you be different? Well, I I was a turd. Uh, I kind of moved into that belief. Like I started believing what all these people told me, you know, that I was a disappointment, that I was a criminal, that I was, I wasn't, I wasn't a benefit to society. You know, I mean, my grandma, uh, who basically, you know, helped raise me, my mom kind of put herself through school. She left my dad when I was three and we moved out to California to live with her parents um, from Utah. And she put herself through school. She was one of the first computer programmers. You know, she had to, she had to commute to San Jose to go to the first, you know, computer programming class. Mm. And then, uh, went back to MPC and the Monterey Institute of International Studies and like got her degrees. And so my grandma kind of raised me and my grandma, when I was 13, just so you get this context, 10 years of just being emotionally, physically, and, uh, mentally abused by this woman. She finally told me when I was 13, she goes, she goes, come over here, sit on my lap, which never happened. And I sat on her lap and she looked at me and she goes, I have always hated you. Oh my gosh. Your grandmother said that to you? And I have always hated you because you are your father's son. And I'm sure you know that I've hated you, but I just wanted you to be clear about why. Dude. And so I learned from, you know, neighbors. I, I, I had a very, very crazy life growing up. Like she would lock me out of the house. Uh, basically from like first grade on. So I would walk to school uh, and I lived in Pacific Grove. So it was a nice, it was a safe community, but I would walk to school in first grade and I would come home. She locked the door. So I just would stay at school until all my teachers would go home. And then uh, the teachers started realizing like, Oh, you don't ever want to go home. Like what's going on there. So every once in a while I had teachers that were like trying to be there for me, but you know, that capacity is so limited, even for people right. that have a desire to help me. And so eventually I just started believing that like, I wasn't worth anything. And so I started doing things um, just out of like spite and anger and just kind of believing those lies. And uh, it was, a, it was a, it was a really difficult road. It was a really, really tough way to try to figure out who I was, you know? So, dude, that is super heavy. So, so here's what makes this even more interesting. And and I don't want to lead down to an assumption, but did skateboarding become the thing that rescued you from that? And so then when you say like, I took off my shoes and I walked away and I cried, it's like, holy shit, man, you just went from this thing that rescued your identity to, to then maybe God or this fatherhood thing calling you away from that? Like, dude, talk about that. So my grandma was a a Christian, right? And, uh, air quotes. Yeah. Air quotes. And, and we were, uh, my dad's family is all Mormons and just very religious people. And so that just really put me off. You know, I wasn't looking down that road. Well, you weren't feeling any love from any of those angles. So what, what was there a desire to go be a part of any of that shit? Yeah. Not, at not, that point. No love there. So yeah, everywhere else I started looking, you know, girls, drugs, uh, philosophy, 
you know, I, when I started taking psychedelics, that really opened up my eyes, my mind, my heart, like everything. And I started just pursuing truth. Mm. And uh, that was when I was like 16 or so. And I started pursuing truth. I, 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 I got tired of people telling me that everything was relative. Oh, it's well, it's, it's relative to you. It's relative to your experience. It's, you know, it's whatever you think. And I'm like, that's just not, that's not right. It's not right. And then fast forward, um, you know, in and out of jail, you know, I spent three years of my life incarcerated, um, bad decisions and, and good decisions as well. But, you know, you're saying like a lot of the stuff, like who, how, how do you learn who you are? You learn who you are real quick in jail. Mm. Um, there's no place to hide there. There's no clothes that, that tell you you're a status person or this way or that way. Yeah. You're in a jumpsuit and you're a man and you're convicted of a crime and uh, you're, you're there to do your time and, and sort that stuff out. And I learned a lot about what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be honest and what it meant to be dishonest um, from the penal system, you know? So it was a, it was a long, really, really difficult road. And I I remember having moments where I was in jail and just like, just wanting to die, right? Like horrible, horrible suffering and not, not having a, a relationship with God at that point in my life, but like still, you know, you cry out. And, uh, I remember being like, the second half of my life, you know, cause I was like 20 or whatever. So I figured you know, I'd live to be 40 maybe. <laughs> and, uh, I'm like the second half of my life better be in balance with how horrible the first half has been. Now, when you cried that out, it doesn't sound like that came from a victim mindset, which really no. couldn't, no. It, yeah. So where's that difference though, man? It's like, dude, every piece of everything to, to, you know, I think about my, my 12 year old daughter to have her sit on a lap of a, of a, of a trusted advisor and say, I hate you. Like just the, the, the damage that that could do, but you show up to this moment incarcerated, been told nothing really great about you. And you're still not taking this perspective of I'm a victim. You're looking and going, it sounds like you're taking some responsibility, not to how you were treated, but how to, to what was going to happen next. Well, that, that was a That was, so when I did the last bit that I did was I served a year and Damn. I had, I had 15 years suspended sentence and it was for, it was for drugs. Uh, interesting side note. Um, it was the largest effort by the DEA and the TFA to bust an LSD lab. Like that's what the report said. Like we were getting close to like million dollar deals. Like when I got out of it, but I I watched friends lose their minds on, on LSD. And I just said, you know, I'm out, I'm not doing this anymore. And so they tried to put the pinch on me and they tried to bust me, but I didn't have any stuff. They busted my friends with all the rest of my stuff. I just gave it away. I'm like, you guys can have it. And so they busted my friends and to get my friends off, it was that moment where I decided like, am I going to keep running or am I going to take responsibility? Mm. Am I going to be a man? Am I going to, am I ever going to get to a place where I take ownership for the decisions that I, that I make? And so I took responsibility. 
um, all of my friends got off and I ended up getting very, very, very lucky and only had to serve a year. And they basically were like, you know, you're going to, you're going to end up back in here for 15 years. Nobody does five years in parole and doesn't violate a single time. And they said, if you violate once you get a parking ticket, you're going to serve 15 years. So I did it. I made it past that. And I got out of the system, which is an incredibly almost impossible thing to do. And uh, I remember being in my mom's living room and like my skateboarding career was starting to take off again. And I remember having this moment of like apathy (laughs) and being like, you know what? I'm smart. I'm good looking. I'm talented. I live in a great place. I'm just going to. I'm just going to be grateful for that. Hmm. I'm not going to pursue this truth. I'm not going to pursue, you know, a deeper meaning in life. Like I'm just going to be grateful for what I have right now. And then I think it was like two weeks later, I was standing in that same place again. And uh, it's just hard to talk about this. It's such a personal experience, but um, God showed up. God showed up in the living room. There was no living room. I was just standing in this brilliance. There was no shadow. There was no person. There was just this complete understanding of like awe and power. And all I, all I heard and felt was you're done. You're done. You're, you're not going to live in this space anymore. You're going to come work for me. And I was just like, who are you? You know? And uh, he said, I, I'm, I'm God. I, I created you. Like, you're going to come work for me now. Mm-hmm. And I remember just thinking, like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, am I having a flashback? Like, is this real? You know? And then there was just this, like, realness to it that, that stuck with me. And, and again, it was like another two-week span. Like, I just went back to, like, doing my life. And and things were going great. And I walked back in, in that room and I just, there was this lingering like presence. And I, I remember getting down on my face and being like, look, I don't know if you're real or if that really happened, but if you are send somebody, give me a sign, like, tell me something like, what do I do next? I don't know anybody that knows you. I don't know how to read the Bible. If that's who you are, I, I know nothing right? Like mm. you got to do something for me because I don't know what to do next. And from that moment on, Ned, it was like, God, I can't even explain. There was just this awareness, this sensitivity, this every little thing that happened in my life, I took it as like significant. And I started pursuing every little thing. And like, if somebody said something, I'd be like, Oh, I see that connection there with what I was thinking this morning. And like, I, I, so I would pursue that person. I'd be like, why'd you say that? I'd sit down, we would talk. And then that would lead me to the next person that would lead me to the next thing. And then I would kind of go through these processes. And then basically what happened was I came to know Christ. You know, I came to know Christ and I came to this like belief that, uh, that I was saved Mm. and that I had this new opportunity 
And what happened was I was stripped bare. Like I, I learned how to talk again. I learned how to dress myself again. I learned how to walk. I learned how to like think completely as if I was reborn, you know? And like, it's funny because I'd been running from that my whole life because of yeah. my grandpa and because of religion. And, and now here I am stuck right in the, in, in this thing that like, I could not have found something that was more real in my life and everything that I, uh, that this, that this Christ told me to do was true. And this weekend, uh, I went up to San Francisco. I, I went and I got in touch with the skater. You remember Lenny Kirk? Yep. Uh, and I went and I got in touch with him. Um, cause he rode for the same team that I did for alien. And I was like, yo, I, you know, I don't know anybody that's a Christian. Um, and I just need to kind of get, I, I, I need to know what this is. Like, is this the same Christ and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'll oh, come up, you know, stay with me. And in that weekend, man, I just, the stuff that I saw, you know, when, when, when the Bible tells you that like your eyes are opened, like that was, I, I saw the truth. I saw everybody for who they were and not for who they wanted me to see them to be. Mm. And so I felt like I had the superpower but I also felt like I just needed to just really be a student and just watch and learn and absorb. And then I was just remade into this person. And uh, that weekend, I actually met my wife. Um, Dude, that's gnarly. Right. And uh, when I got back, um, I got picked up for a bench warrant for some super old driving on a suspended license, like six years old, driving on a suspended. And the spiritual warfare like took off, bro. It was insane. I was handcuffed to this dude named Fats, who was a pimp and a Coke dealer. And, uh, and we went into court and this dude had stolen a police car, run over a police officer with it and, and, and ran away. And he got a 90 day violation of parole parole and I was in for a suspended sentence or a suspended driver's license. And, uh, this, this judge told me that I had to pay like a $5,000 fee or serve out my time, um, to pay it off. And it ended up being like 90 something days. I ended up getting more time than this dude that had stole a police car, <laughs> went over a police officer. Also, and this dude, Check this out. This dude, Fats, he looked at me and he goes, because we were talking in the jail cell, you know, and he's like, are you holy? Like, because you just have this presence. And we started talking. He's like, "My, you know, I come from a, a religious background, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you just seem like a godly cat. And then after that, he goes, yo, like God's got a calling on your life because that was the devil in there. And he's trying what? to oppress you. Yeah. And in that 90 days, bro, <laughs> in that 90 days. I read the Bible all the way through. I read the New Testament 34 times. I fasted for two weeks and I put my life on the line for Jesus. Like that's, I mean, that's another story, but like this dude, this murderer, Marcus told me he was going to kill me, told everybody in mainline that he was going to murder me that night. And God just said, do you trust me? 
And because I wanted to run, dude, I was so scared because, you know, he was he, he was a, he, so he was a black dude. And uh, I was working with the uh, the black shot caller in the jail at the time. And we were studying the Quran and we were studying the Bible. And I was kind of helping him through the Quran. And we were like figuring out the differences. And, and I remember that dude came in and he looked at me and he shook his head. And like, uh, I was like, what's up, man? And he, he like turned his back on me. Mm. This was the black shot caller. And it was, so I, I knew like I had no protection, no love. And, uh, the whole place was going crazy, like, like animals, like hyenas, like, like, oh, you know, like the screaming and the lights went out and everybody's like, oh, it's going down tonight, you know, and all this stuff. And his, he slept across the aisle from me on the bottom bunk. And I slept on the top bunk and his best buddy in jail slept underneath me. He was doing all these scare tactics. He was like trying to say all this stuff to me, like, you know, boo, you know, trying to get me to, to re- react to him. And I remember God just kept telling me like, don't react. Don't give him anything. You didn't do anything for this. This is, this is a, this is a faith moment for you. And, and I just kept, I went up to the cops. Like I was like, yo, this dude's trying to kill me. And the cops just looked at me and closed the shutter. And that was it. And I had to walk back into mainline, you know, 300 people, shame, just because I didn't want to face this dude. And then I was just like, all right, man, fine. Like, if we're going to fight, we're going to fight. And God was like, nope, you're not going to fight. I was like, what do you mean? I'm not going to fight. Like, this isn't a David and Goliath moment. And he was like, nope. He's all, do you trust me? And I just kept going, man, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, what do you mean? Like, just trust me. And I just kept going like, what? Trust me to, what do I do? Do I make it? I got to make a decision. He's like, just trust me. And so I just got on the bed and just like, oh my gosh, dude, my nerves. Like, I was like, there's no way I'm going to go to sleep. This is, I, I, I'm, you know, I can't do this. And God was like, you can do this. Just trust me. And then, you know, he would come up and like bang the bed or like shake the bed and yell at me. And I would, he would just be like, just trust me. And then I remember he goes, are you ready? And then I heard the black shot caller go, Marcus, you need another lock. And he goes, no, bro, I got my lock. And what he, what he had done was he took his lock for his locker and he put it in the sock and he ties the end of the sock and they use it as like a, a bludgeoning tool. Yeah. And so he was like banging my, the metal of my bed, like right next to my head and like screaming at me and he was doing all this stuff, but he never touched me. And so then all of a sudden I realized like he never touched me. And I'm like, man, maybe, maybe I can trust God. And so I remember just going, okay, you know what? If I die, I die. And if I don't, then I got a cool story to tell. And I remember closing my eyes. Oh my gosh. Right when I closed my eyes, his buddy underneath him said, is now the time? And he goes, yep. And I closed my eyes and I felt my blankets. Like he reached up and grabbed my blankets and pulled my blankets down to hold me in place. And I was like, this is it. And I just, I closed my eyes and I started falling asleep. I went from this like, you know, super heightened, like couldn't turn my brain off, insane feeling of like, I'm going to die right now to like, 
now I'm falling asleep and I'm like, oh, this is it. Like, <laughs> like before you die, you do kind of just go to sleep. So I'm like, I'm not going to feel it or anything, or hopefully it just smashes my brain out. And, and, and I just, you know, I get on with my, you know, uh, eternity or whatever it is. Right. Oh my gosh. And all I hear is this, nah, man, I'm going to be a good boy tonight. And then I hear his flip flops. And then I wake up the next day. And I'm like the only person in mainline. Everybody is gone. And I'm like, oh no, like, did I miss breakfast? And so like I got dressed and I run in and I, I run in and Marcus is not sitting at the black table anymore. I'm like, all, everybody's kind of going about their business. And I see Marcus like sitting off to his side by himself. And like the black shot caller like walked by and this dude is terrifying. He walked by and like, hit me with his shoulder and like his peck, you know, like yeah. his one peck is like as wide as me. Like this guy <laughs> is ginormous and he hit me and he was like, he like shook his head and like walked by and I barely got my food. And I sat down and was just like, like I survived, like this is real. And then two weeks later, bro, I led Marcus to Christ. No way. Mm-hmm. And then I got out. And uh, two days later, I was engaged to Sarah. We went on one date. My buddy was trying to hook me up before I moved to Florida and opened the skate shop for this family. And uh, God said, this is what I have for you. And um, I asked her to marry me on our first date. And uh, she said, yes. And we've so been married you, met her, you met her right before you went to to jail for 90 days for like two seconds for like two seconds yeah you met her one weekend and then you get you go to jail so that took maybe like 100 110 days or so from that point yeah and and then you get out you she still wants to be with you no 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 (laughs) no no. she was asking my buddy it's just so funny man this is just the way things work right like my buddy jeremy is like trying to get me laid before I, because I just get out of jail and he's like, he's all, dude, that, that girl is like super interested in you. I'm like, what girl? And he's like, that girl that you met in the car. I was like, the, I don't even remember who you're talking about, really. He's like, well, she remembers you. And I was like, look, dude, that's not me anymore. Mm. I don't live that way anymore. I'm not interested in, in women like that. And like, I, I have a new direction in life. And, and little did I know that he was a Christian that had walked away from his faith. And he told me that that moment changed his life later on. And now he's married and he's a dad and he's got five kids and he's been married for 21 years now. And we still are connected. And, um, but you know, just the way that those things work. And, uh, and so he tried to get me connected with her and I was like, I'm not having it. Like, it's just too much of a temptation for me. I have this focus. I need to do this and I need to just, you know, focus on living a, a godly life. I'd still never been to church. I'd still, <laughs> I'd still never like, you know, participated in the Christian culture. Right. I was just this very raw, uh, dude that had a, a very visceral, very real experience with the living Christ that had saved my life more than once now. Yeah. And so I'm trying to honor this and, and, and be this like altruistic dude. And then this chick just keeps calling me and keeps calling me. And finally, I'm like, all right, I'll talk to you. And I talk to her. And it's just like, we have this, you know, back and forth. We're having these conversations. And finally, I'm like, you know what? God just keeps telling me, you have to go 
see this woman before you leave. And I'm like, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm going to Florida. God's telling me to do this. Like, it's probably, you know, I'm going to meet like a real Christian woman and see the difference. And like, they're totally different, blah, blah, blah. Dude, so I drive up to Alameda. No, I get a ride up there. That's another supernatural thing. Boom. I don't even have a car. You know, I just got jail and all this other stuff. And uh, I meet with her and um, I'm making her spaghetti at this dude's house. That's like this facilitator, right? This enabler, Chris Ray. He's this great guy that God just used in my life. Um, he had a prophet's room in the back of his house that I stayed Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I had her over. She, she got done doing her young life thing and she came over. I made her spaghetti and God had told me like, um, this is what I have for you. He didn't say like, this is your wife. Ask her to marry you. He just said, this is what I have for you. And so I remember just looking at her and being like, will you marry me? And she just started laughing. And like, <laughs> she closed her eyes, right? This is our first date. And she closed her eyes and she just kind of laughed. And she was like, yeah, I'll marry you. You know? That's so gnarly, bro. Yeah. Uh. <sighs> and and our, our walk our, as parents has been like that ever since. Like everything has just been one foot in front of the other. Like I remember when God like tuned down the sensitivity of, of our ability to communicate. And he basically was like, you're not a kid anymore. You're not a baby. You need to be a man and I'm going to back off and you're going to have to figure things out on your own. When was that? When was that moment? That was about a year into our marriage. Okay. So right before she got pregnant. Yeah. And he just kind of was like, you know, good luck. <laughs> take everything that I've taught you, take everything that I've showed you and and grow up, be a man. Like any good dad, huh? Yeah, yeah. Let me take off the training wheels. And, as far and as I know, <laughs> I didn't know any good dad, so. <laughs> but he stepped in and, and took over that role. Yeah, yeah, He's he's been my, my father, for sure. It's hard for me to move to like another another thought, another question, you know, it's like to sit in everything that you shared and to really just take a couple deep breaths and go like, dude, that's, that's your life. Hmm. That is, that is your story, your life. Um, and I, and I know just as I'm hearing it, um, as the dudes that are listening are hearing it, it's like, we got to absorb this. Like, this isn't just, I'm going to throw on a podcast and hear some, you know, how to be a good dad tips. This is like another human being, another man, another dad on the adventure of fatherhood sharing his real stories of what has been done in his life. And we get to, we get to participate. We get that investment of your stories. That's, that's a, do thank you for, for, for sharing. And, uh, and that sounds so minimal to say it that way. And I don't have other words to use, but it's powerful. And, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to like re-listening and really absorbing, absorbing all of it. But I do want to ask you a few other questions from from this. 
Sure. So I'm going to skip some of my questions. Last time you and I met, we sat and we had lunch together and we've only met twice for lunch, seen each other at skate park, you know, here and there, mm-hmm. um, bike shop. But we, we had a nice meal. I met your son and, and, and we're saying our goodbyes and, and we walk out to the street and I'm about to walk to my car. You're about to walk to yours. And we are like, I mean, super close face to face. And you turn to me and we're talking about, Oh yeah, let's schedule a podcast, bro. You know, like whatever dude goodbyes. And you make a comment. You said something to the extent of, I believe that I was put on this earth to be a father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. And that moment will stick with me forever. Whether I ever, we ever like or hang out again, that, that moment. So what led you to say that? I mean, that was like an intimate moment, an intimate thought that you shared with me and to, to have the context. Now I didn't even know all your story. So to have the context of like, no one taught you to be a dad. Mm-hmm. There's this moment where supernaturally God steps in and reveals and shows, you know, how to, how to raise somebody and to send them off. And then also to understand that you were very much like, Hey, will you marry me? You know, it's like, you're, you're there, you're present. You, you have accepted that you're on a journey and a path. I just think that all those things are so important to pay attention to. And then this moment you share with me, I was put on this earth to be a father. Talk to me about that. Mm. Well, um, I'm an observant person and I feel like, I live in this uh, very objective place. My personality is a, I'm I'm a, I'm a challenger by nature. um, And I've had to be because of the way that I was raised and and feeling betrayed by those that were supposed to be my caretakers. And, and so I've had to vet everybody my whole life. And I see that I'm a good dad. Like I see the fruit of my efforts with my wife and how it's created two of my favorite people on the planet. Mm. And when people get to meet my boys, I feel like that is the greatest contribution to society that I could have ever done is raise those two young men. Cause they're, they're outstanding. They're just, they, they blow my mind, their mm-hmm. awareness, their compassion, their, their drive, like who they are as individuals. They are literally polar opposites um, in every way, in their personality, in their physical makeup, in their emotional understanding, like every possible way that they could be really, really different, they are. And I feel like I got to live this just, it's, it's the best, man. It's, it's just the best being their dad and, and, and being able to parent with Sarah. Like we just, it was everything like we would just read books and books and books. And like, um, you know, we would ask the people that we thought were, were good parents 
or, or just parents at all, we would be like, what, you know, what do you do here? What do you do there? And we were just like, that was like, that was everything, you know, like people get into hobbies, like people get into this, people get into that. Like that was what we wanted to, to, to be as parents. And, and through this process, like we kind of parented each other because we didn't really have parents. And, um, you know, when we were, when we were little and, uh, you know, Sarah has since, um, really ignited a, a fantastic relationship with her mom. And, um, and I'm super grateful for that because Mimi is like really the only grandparent that's involved in our life. Um, but for the most part, like, you know, we just, we grew up on our own. And so we kind of felt like to be parents at all, we had to do that. And, you know, we were like, we had some friends that were like, oh, no, we're not doing that. You know, people that were like, oh, no, we don't believe in spanking. We're like, yeah, you don't have kids yet. So we were the first <laughs> ones. We were the first ones out of our friend group. So I was 25. Sarah was 23 when Elijah was born. And nobody else in our friend group or at our church or anything had kids. So we were the first ones. And Elijah was the first by like a year or so. And Elijah was super unique in that, like, he almost killed Sarah, first of all. Like, um, he got stuck in her pelvis, and she pushed for, like, it was, like, three <sighs> days, ago. And then they had to do an emergency C-section because their temperatures were getting too high. Mm. And, like, when they pulled him out, his head was, like, had a step to it, you know, because it was he was stuck in there. And she was like, I'm going to have a natural birth because, anyways. And yes, just, the whole it thing. Happened, just didn't happen. So she pulls him out, dude, at nine months, 10 months, he started talking. And four weeks later, he was like having conversations and like walking and like he memorized our whole church of like 300 and something people. Like I would stand there as a greeter and say hi to folks and he'd be like, oh, hey, hey, Sean. Hey, hey, Lynn. Hey, Justin. Hey. And people were like, you're how old are you? Like, I don't know everybody <laughs> church and i'm an elder at this church and like this dude's 11 months old and knows everybody and so he was this super chill kid and he was just this great great guy and he just made he made being a dad a joy hmm. and i just remember thinking like what's better than this nothing is better than this like there's nothing in my life that has been more satisfying or or brought more joy and, and that's because I'm doing it with with my wife Sarah right like I just felt like this the depth of intimacy everything that I had ever wanted in my life everything that I'd ever wanted to be loved to be seen to be understood I got that I got that from my wife but I got that from this little boy and the way that he looked at me, the way that he adored me, like it just changed everything. It changed everything for me. This is rebel and create. This is exactly <laughs> what it is. I mean, as men, mm. as men, we have this desire now, now, you you clearly had an experience of not having those things, right? Mm. 
And, and, and then you were put into a family where then you realize that you could gain that, but you could have pursued skateboarding. You could have pursued mountain bike. You could have pursued a lot of the talents that you have and, and hoped and longed for those desires to be wanted, needed, loved, respected, to have that little, like that, that little child look up at you. You could have pursued things out in the world to gain a glimpse of that. But, but rebellion created that God designed you to, to lead a family and to, you said the depth of your intimacy with your wife and like being on a journey to learn to parent together, like, dude, that's rebel and create. And that's what I want men to embrace is like everything you want is inside your home. Mm-hmm. Like there's something in you that you were made, you were made to serve, to be on a journey, to be on an adventure. And dude, that's what I love most about you is this word that we got stuck on in our conversation at lunch was what is meditation? Meditation. And and you know, you're in you're in school and 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 studying philosophy and and you really you've been a student of that your whole life. But I came to it with this sense of like meditation is turning my phone, you know, phone app on for 10 minutes and being quiet. <laughs> and and what's so beautiful now that I think about it, it's like you and I are in this deep conversation about meditation. Your son shows up at the same restaurant. You turn to me and say, Hey, do you mind if my, my son and his friends sit with me? Like you weren't worried about it in in messing up your time with me. You had a priority that your son showed up and he was a priority to you. And although you're 47 and he's 19, you had a belief that your son is going to sit at this table and provide value to the conversation. Absolutely. And you didn't speak over him, I noticed. You asked him, hey, well, what's your guys' opinion on this, that, and the other? Okay, so I mean, dude, this is super full circle right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, you know, you brought this idea of meditation is, and you said it earlier on in our conv- uh, conversation, when you when you first were having those encounters at the house, and, and, and what is this? You were saying chewing and meditating on what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so you've been a student of that. And so what you had talked to me about is meditation is like, maybe it's a student, like maybe somebody's listening to these podcasts right now and they're chewing on something. They're going through their day, choosing whether to just like clock in and clock out. I I read for 10 minutes or am I taking what I read or listened to for that 10 minutes and I'm chewing on it and meditating on it for as long as it takes for it to become a part of me. Yeah. But then the thing that I've noticed about you, which is something that I'm just realizing and and understanding as a man, is I have been searching for an arrival. And it seems as though, for some reason, from the beginning, you were never searching for an arrival because the arrival is understanding that you're on a path and you're willing to be open to, yes, maybe have a plan, but being aware of what's happening and, oh, this person, I'm going to go meet with them. And, oh, this, I'm going to go check out that. And like, that's the exciting part of life. Yeah. That's my favorite part. That's my favorite part of life. Have you ever read The Alchemist? No. Paulo Paulo Coelho? No, I've heard of it, but haven't read it. it, It's basically a story of of people that, that live that deep connection to everything they just they listen and they respond they're not trying to like control they're not trying to like make things uh bend to their will Mm. and i I feel like that's like one of the 
the most important things that I learned through my process was that I felt like everything that God did in my life was to break my will, but not break my spirit. And so I took that to heart. That was one of the core things for me being a parent was to realize that when your will gets out in front of your intellect or the, 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 the divine revelation of creation and in Christ in you, you make bad decisions. Mm. And every time that something that I wanted became more important than what I saw was the necessary greater good of whatever environment I was in. I saw that it limited the capacity to do good regardless of how well it, it went. So if I was successful in becoming a professional skateboarder, but I didn't do it in the way where it was, you know, in alignment with society and, and, and Christ and God and everything happening all at the same time, then it was just something that I made happen. And the interesting thing about culture is that it tells you that's how you get stuff done is you make it happen. And so people, you know, go, Oh, I got to do this. I have to make this happen. And, you know, just uh, put everything aside and everything aside. I'll sacrifice my family. I'll sacrifice this and I'll, I'll put it off to the side until I get this done, until I make my million dollars or I make my billion dollars or I, I get this. But I had that. And I remember like in the Thrasher interview, like, you know, I got the hammer page in Thrasher, like Luke Ogden, like tried to get some other more well-known skater like Jamie Thomas and the whole zero team. He took them to this rail and nobody would touch this rail. And so I remember Luke calling me up and he goes, dude, hey, you got the hammer page in Thrasher, bro. The next thing is a cover. He goes, we're going to work on, we're going to work on an interview and you need to think of something that you want to shoot for a cover. And so I was like, all right. So, and then I remember like, as soon as I hung up the phone, God was like, yeah, you got your cover. You got your interview. Like, and then what? And the way that God talks to me is it's complete, right? Like people go, oh, does he speak in words? Does he speak? No, man. It's like, it's complete. It's perfect. Like mm. there's no, I don't have to discern intent or like, what are you trying to say? You know, like it's just complete. Like I get it. It's like a download. It's like instantaneous. And I knew exactly what he meant. It was never going to be enough. And I was like, well, then I'm going to want to interview in trans world. I'm going to want to interview in big brother. I'm going to want to interview in slap. I'm going to want this. I'm going to want that. And he goes, yeah. And what, what are you going to get? It's not going to make you a better person. It's not going to make you happier. Like you've already been in the magazine, what, 60 times? Did that make you feel better? Yeah. And I just was like, man, I just, it's so simple. It's so simple. Mm. But I just, I just, and I didn't want, I didn't want my boys to pursue that. I didn't want to perpetuate that lie. So I felt like really convicted that if I were to continue to pursue that career or whatever, that I was just going to be a liar. 
because I knew that at that point it wasn't satisfying and it wasn't going to mean anything more to me the next day. It's so counterculture to what we're being taught, what we're being shown. Yeah. And I love the words you use, perpetuate that lie. Yeah. That's what we do, right? We live in the Mm -hmm. truth or we perpetuate the lie. Man, there's so much going through my head. So, so many thoughts, so much that I've gained from this conversation. Um, before I ask my last question, are there any other thoughts, things that jump out to you? And actually I have two questions that you'd want to make sure to share before we wrap up. Well, I'd say the hardest thing and the most essential thing for every human being to do is to be honest with themselves. And I would say that that was the the foundation for my rebirth. Because I felt like when I got in that car after that first weekend I told you about when I went up to to meet Lenny and I was getting picked up because I still didn't have really a dime to my name. I I didn't have a car. I was getting picked up by my friend Heather and she had just gotten back from the Sarah McLaughlin show and she was with five girls and they were all partying. And it was like, that was my temptation. Hmm. And I saw that when I got in the car and I was like, Oh God, you're so funny. You're testing me with the deepest, deepest thing that I use to make me feel satisfied and loved. Mm. Immediately. Immediately. You're like, oh, you want to be? You want to be in my family? You want to be in the family business? Let's, here, here's your ultimate test. Boom. But right? let me, let right me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you think that God was testing you to see if you were worthy to be in the family business or no. No. Okay. So he's, he's allowing that moment to happen, not for him. He's allowing it to happen for you so that you know that you have what it takes. Yes. 100%. And that, ah, that's the beauty of it is we miss that. We miss that. We think God's testing me because he needs some sort of like, at a boy, he doesn't need that. He already knows. He, he already knows. He's <laughs> letting you know for, for your own self that you that you have what it takes, man. And that's a good dad, mm. dude. That's a good dad to show you you have what it takes. Yep. Um, bro, that's so good, dude. <laughs> so good. Okay, <laughs> so I have, I, have, I have two more questions for you. Okay. And this is one that I almost missed. But you made this, we have that intimate moment. You tell me Mm -hmm. I was put on this earth to be a father. Mm -hmm. So my question is, do you think that that is unique to you? Or do you think that? No. Okay. Tell me why. Expand on that because that's huge. In my meditations, um, journaling and, and prayer time, I remember 
really, 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 really struggling with, oh, I, I need to be in Africa. I need to be in Mexico. I need to be doing this missionary work. I need to be doing more. I need to be at church more. I need to be doing this. I need to be doing that. I need to be doing God's work. And every time I would come back, God would say, you are so full of yourself. And I'd be like, what? Mm. what do you do? I'm doing your work. And he's like, you're not doing my work. My work is, is, is your family. He goes, you want to change the world, Heath? Go home and love your wife and kids. And I remember thinking like, oh, what does that mean? He goes, that's how you change the world. He goes, think about it this way. So one of the ways that I see the world is I see everything in micro and I see everything in macro. And they're the same, right? Like in physics and in, in science and the atomic structure, like everything on the micro level is the same thing on a macro level. So like the universe looks like an atom, okay? So like you follow me? Yeah. So when I, when I take that and I take that to the extremes, right? The extreme of micro macro, he goes, what would happen if every father went home and loved their wife and went home and loved their kid. What would happen to the world? And I was like, it's that easy. He's like, yeah, man, that's it. That's it. You got to do this. You got to do that. He goes, no, all you all you need to do is go home, love your wife, love your kids. And the world will take care of itself. Ah. Uh. I'm writing this down. <laughs> I could re-listen to it, but it's just like, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And I just want to say, you know, I know we all have our wrestle, our story, you know, we're taking an hour out of life, but man, it just, you are such an amazing example of this. Thank you. Dude, like, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm 37. I'm, I'm, I'm on a path. I'm on a journey. I'm trying to discover my identity, who I am. This rebelling create is a process of that. This is a learning journey for me. And I'm just having to share it with everybody. Mm. Um, but like the work you've done is now pouring into me and now pouring into everybody listening. And so dude, it's good, man. I'm grateful. I'm, I'm dude, glad. I, uh, I love it. All right, man. My last question, legacy question. <clears throat> mm. So, I think we could gather some of this, but we'll ask it anyways. Okay, let's let's throw this out 40 years from now. Okay, 40 years from now, your boys are going to be in their 60s almost. Okay, so they're going to be on the tail end of like family, maybe start, you know, if they have families, maybe start to have a grandkid or two. Like when you peer into your boys' homes, what is it that you see? What is the legacy, the day in and day out? What is it that you see in them? Well, it's really different for both of them because Elijah, Elijah has a very interesting, unique calling on his life. From seven years old, he knew he was going to be like a, a scientist that was going to do something that changed the world. And now he's a chemical engineer at Cal and, and, and he's working towards that in his life. And his personality type is very, it's the, it's the personality type that is the most celibate. 
personality type. And he's mm. kind of had that conversation with us over and over again. Cause we're like, we want to be grandparents, you know? And, and uh, he's like, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Like I feel this calling in my life and I feel like this is the direction I'm going. And us as parents, like that's been our whole thing is to facilitate the space and the environment for them to be who they are and to nurture and celebrate that yeah, and not to try to make them fit into what we want. And so that's a very interesting decision, you know, and calling on Elijah's life, but we, we all agree and, and that we would still love to see him fall in love and, and be a parent and all that stuff. We'd love to see that. But Shiloh, Elijah has called Shiloh, you know, the teen dad since he was 13. But <laughs> Shiloh is just this very loving, very, very personal. Like when you meet him, you met him. Yeah. Like he, he feels like a dad. He, he, he brings everybody that's around him and loves them and supports them and protects them and feels like he has to provide for them. And like, um, He's just this guy that makes you feel fathered. Mm. You know, I'm almost 50 years old and and my 19 year old sits down with me and, and not when he's trying, because when he's trying, it it feels put on, but when he's just being a loving, you know, altruistic version of his 19 year old self, and he's in this space where he's just being really honest and really vulnerable. He is, he is a father and the way that he speaks, the way that he loves people like, you know, we can't wait to, um, to see him in that capacity, like as a real father, because like, even in his group of friends, like he's that guy, right? Like, like he's the guy that everybody kind of comes and, like, Hey, I need some advice or, Hey, can you help me with this? Or, Hey, can you do that? And like, and, and, the, and his friends tell us that, you know, they're like, yeah, he's like, you know, he's this great guy. And he, he, he loves us in this way that like, you know, maybe they don't feel loved at home. Hmm. And so, um, we're excited to see how they develop as men, but we, we don't have any expectations. We just are enjoying the experience and, and the opportunity to be really, really closely involved with their lives. Dude, I think that's such a beautiful response to the legacy question because <clears throat> what you're passing on is, is, is enjoying and being present in life and allowing you and Sarah to take who you are, who you've continued to become, this growth-minded pursuit of life, and you've passed that on to them with the idea that it's not to become Heath Jr. No. That it's to take all that Heath and Sarah had to offer and then go be, go live, go exist. And that part of that legacy piece is that you've built a relationship with them where you get to be a part of whoever it is that they become, but there's still something that's unique about you is in the, the, the philosophy, the very open, the very um, moment experiential, you still have an anchor, which is unique to your perspective on life. The anchor of truth 
And it was the thing that at, you know, 13 to 15 years old was already implanted in you that everything isn't just relative smoke and mirrors, meditate, ooey, ay, whatever. There's still a hook for you mm-hmm. or an anchor. I don't want to say hook. I want to say anchor. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an incredible thing because you allow that anchor to exist while the other exists. And I think too much in our culture and our world, we don't let those two be, be both end. And that's unique, man, because, and I think it might come down to religion for a lot of people is that that doesn't allow them to experience the freedom that it sounds like you really experience and that you want your family and children to experience. Well said. Bro, this has been fun, man. <laughs> oh, dude. You, you're you're right. Be, we could just talk forever. We could, well, we're gonna do it again. We, I just know it'll be a it'll be a regular. It'll be a regular. We talked about you know doing one with you and your sons, and I think that that would be killer as they're on that they're on that launch pad of life. So that would be fun too, bro. Heath, uh, I, we've hung out a couple times, but this has been super special and really powerful and meaningful to me. Thank you for being real, vulnerable, honest, and sharing your life, dude. I just can't say it enough. And just keep keep on that path, man. Keep on that journey of enjoying life and, and continuing to grow and share who you are with the world around you. Thank you. You too. All right, brother. Until next time. Happy. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. I can't believe it either. What an incredible conversation. I mean, you can hear it in my voice. I'm smiling ear to ear. I love the adventure of fatherhood, you guys. We are not alone. Collectively, we are on an adventure. And if just each one of us listen, listening to this right now were to go step into our homes and love our wives and our children well and accept the responsibility that's been handed to us, the world would look and feel different. And that, my friends, is what Rebel and Create is all about. Thank you to all you dads out there listening to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast. What you do matters, like literally is the most important thing. Don't be like everybody else. Be yourself. That is who your kids, spouse, and community needs. This is your guide, Ned Shout. Together, let's rebel against the view that fatherhood has little impact and create lives engaged in mastering the craft of fatherhood. And if you haven't done so already, please hit that like, subscribe, add a review. It helps spread the word that fatherhood matters. Talk to you next time.